In our last study, chapter 16, we saw how God had rejected Saul because he was a disobedient and a self-serving king. And so God, when he had rejected Saul, said that he was going to install a better king. I think it's a pretty interesting word there. But he said that uh, he would install a better king, and that better king would be a man after his own heart. David was actually that man. David was a man after God's own heart, and so God was going to um, put David in his king. It hasn't happened yet. So today we get this amazing introduction to David. We're going to probably see today one of the greatest examples of faith and courage, I think, in the whole entire Bible. And it's by a youth, of all things. By a young man, David. So we're going to look at this real-life story. There are many who don't believe this story is true. In fact, I don't know if you've seen stuff in the the news in the last um, probably six months or so, but there has been an explosion of biblically-based archaeology, of things being discovered, proving not just what the Bible says about Israel, but about even David himself. Because for years, scholars have even denied that David existed, that he was a real person. And um, what's been interesting is there's been a ton of stuff lately, just in the last six months or a year, that have shown the authenticity of what we find in the historical events, including things related to David. And so we're going to look at this real-life story today. This is not a myth. This is not a made-up story. It's not an exaggerated story. This is real-life events here leading to um, our introduction to David. So it's 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's sort of break this down for you here. When we get to 1 Samuel 17, what we find is that the Israelite army is cowering in fear before the Philistines. That's probably the best way to describe it. They literally are cowering in fear. They had been facing off against the Philistines, um, Philistines on one side and the Israeli army on the other side, and for, I think it's been almost 40 days where they're not doing anything. Can you imagine going out for battle and then just being afraid to go and fight? Where you just, you know, you went there for a purpose, but you're afraid to go any further. And so that's where we find ourselves today. So they're facing off against the Israeli, or the Israelis are facing off against the Philistines. Let's look at the first 11 verses. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Succoth and Azekah in the Ephraim's Damon. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. So you basically have Israel on one mountain, the Philistines on the other mountain, there's a valley between between them, which is where they would fight, and they're just facing off against each other. Verse 4, Then a a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath. He was from Gath. His height was six cubits and a span, He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. And the shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out and draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and and your servants of Saul? Choose a man from yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. 
Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that will fight together, or that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So what we have here is this man named Goliath taunting the armies of Israel. Now there's a reason why they were afraid. He was a champion, it says, and he was also a beast. This guy was a monster. Look at what it says. It says his height was six cubits in a span. Now some of you, how many of you have an NET translation of the Bible? Anybody here? Sometimes do. Most Bible translations say six cubits in a span. The NET does something a little different, which is why I asked, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, anybody know how tall six cubits in a span is? Yeah. Close, Katie? Nine. Nine and a half feet. Nine and a half feet. So this man was nine and a half feet tall. Now the reason why the NET translation has seven feet or four cubits is because when it comes to our text here, we don't just have one Bible. What we basically have are a bunch of manuscripts. Okay, copies and copies and copies and copies. And so we base our English translation off those copies. Well, there's one line of copies. Almost all of the copies we have of the Old Testament are something called an MT, majority manuscripts, okay? All of them say that he was nine and a half feet tall. But Josephus, who was a historian that lived in the time shortly after Jesus, said he was shorter than that. And the NET decides to follow that. There's another Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that also says he was shorter than that. I'm going to place my trust where all of the manuscripts are, which say that he was tall. The reason why the NET says that he's probably not that tall was because it's unreasonable to think that a man would be that big. But that's not what we base our faith on, is it? The text says he was nine and a half feet tall. This dude was huge. Okay? It also says that he wore a bronze helmet. Now, this is unusual because all the old pictures we have, not photographs, but engravings and that of Philistine armies, they wore feathered helmets. They, weren't, they were soft. This is the first time we've ever seen a Philistine actually have a metal helmet. The reason for that is they're heavy. So this guy's got a big, bronze, heavy helmet. It says that he had scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 125 pounds. That's what his shirt, basically. 125 pounds. Um, scale armor is basically, it looks like fish scales. So it's metal that's layered on top of each other, and it makes it hard to penetrate it with spears and, and other things. And now think about that, 125 pounds. Anybody know what that would feel like? I probably would have difficulty standing with 125 pounds resting on me, let alone to go out and battle and fight. It's another reason why I think the nine foot, nine and a half foot estimate here for Goliath is probably right, because the average man couldn't fight with 125 pounds of metal hanging on his body. It says that he had bronze greaves on his legs. Those are shin guards. Again, a lot of weight. It says that he carried a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. That's a short dart or a spear that's usually used for throwing that was kind of hung over his back. You might think when you see pictures of Robin Hood and he has his, his um, bow and arrow, he can have it slung over. Well, this is a spear that he had actually slung over his shoulders. Probably had a strap on it, but he could probably grab it, throw it. Again, it's made out of bronze, which means it's got some weight to it. Probably the most intimidating weapon he had, though, was his spear. 
that says that his spear had a shaft like a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam was about two to two and a half inches across. So just the the shaft of his spear was probably about that thick. Now think about that. That's probably about that big around. That's a pretty big chunk of wood, isn't it? It says the head was made of iron and weighed 600 shekels. That's about 17 or 18 pounds. So this is a a spearhead that's probably about that tall and weighs quite a bit. I go down and I have a a gym like in our basement stuff and I go down and and I work out. And I'm not, you can see me, I'm not a big muscular guy. But I use for my curls about 25 pounds. Okay? That's what I do my curls with. And I can do about 15 of those before I'm completely exhausted. And I can only do two sets of those. And that's all. I mean, I'm, I'm done for the morning doing that. And so you think about it, this having a spearhead that's about 17, 18 pounds and having to carry that around and use that as a weapon, I, I couldn't do it. I would be totally, completely exhausted fighting with that just based on my own experience of using just weights to curl with. The text doesn't record how tall or how long the spear was, but spears were generally taller than the soldier was. That's the whole point. Get that spear out in front of you, right? So if Goliath is nine and a half feet tall, this spear was likely 10 to 12 feet long. Now, if you ever, if you want to look at this, there's a website, goliathsspear.com, where it's a ministry. Guy actually has recreated what he believes is an exact replica of Goliath's spear, down to the details provided in the scriptures and what we know of Philistine armies and depictions that we've seen. Um, he's made a handful of them, I think four or five of them, I don't, there might be more than that, but he's actually donated one or two of them to the museum, down uh, the Creation Museum. They haven't displayed it yet, but at some point they're going to put it on display. They've got pictures there of people standing with the spear. When you get a, get a look at what this thing looks like, this was an intimidating weapon. So when it says that this guy was a champion and you see the author describing this, the author is trying to paint a picture for us. This was not just some, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger guy out there hanging out, looks like a pretty rough and tumble soldier, you know. No, this was a monster. This was a beast. He was a champion for a reason. He was big. He was strong. He had all of the armor. He had some nasty weapons. The author is trying to set the table for us here. He's, going to, he's trying to lay down exactly what this thing looked like because of what's going to happen down here a little shorter. Now the last thing we see is that in addition to all these things, Goliath came with his own shield bearer as well. There were two types of shield shields that soldiers used in those days. One was a small round shield they would usually put on their arm. So if they were right-handed to use the weapon, they would wear the shield on the left hand. And that was to block the other weapons, right? But they also oftentimes had something called a shield bearer. David was Saul's shield bearer. It was a young individual, usually a smaller individual, and he would carry a tall shield, sometimes as high as maybe five or six feet. And they would use that to go out in front of the soldier. And that would be used as sort of as soldier as, as um, enemies would come towards them. They could hit them with that, and that would sort of free up the champion in this case to do what he would do. So Goliath also came with one of those. This guy's almost a military all on his own. So as he comes out and he stands before the crowd, before the armies, there's a reason why Israel was afraid of this guy. There's nobody that could probably go out and fight this guy without losing their life. That's the point. Now, not only was Goliath 
a big man, but he also had a big mouth. You notice what he does there. He went out and he taunted them, it says, for 40 days. He was arrogant and boastful and proud, and he was literally out there taunting. One day after another, 40 days in a row, we'll go out there and just blast Israel. And he'd go back to his camp, and come back out the next day and do it. And because of that, it says that Israel was dismayed and greatly afraid in verse 11. Again, all this is designed by the author to set the stage for what's about to take place with David, which makes it remarkable. Let's go on. Verse 12. David actually learns what's going on with Goliath here. Go to verse 12. We're going to read another chunk here. It says, Now David was the son of the Ephraite, or Ephrathite, of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second um, to him was Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. It means they were soldiers. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves to run to the camp to your brothers, or and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. The reason for this is oftentimes the soldiers had to have food supplied by their families. And it wasn't like today where the soldiers get a paycheck. So his dad is telling him, go, take this to your brothers. Take the food to them. For Saul, and they all, I'm sorry, we're, uh, verse um, 19, for Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So Jesse, David's dad, sends him off into the, into the front, if you will, tells him to go over and help his brothers out by providing the food, take them supplies, but then also to let him know. They didn't have... You know, Instagram or Facebook, they didn't get a regular update, so Jesse couldn't just open up his iPad and take a look at, you know, what his brothers were doing there. So this is the only way to get information back and forth. But the author here is trying to set up a deliberate contrast between David and his brothers. You notice that he mentions that his brothers had gone off to Saul after battle. It says that um, David went back and forth to tend to the flock. That's the author's way of contrasting David. His brothers were soldiers, but David was nothing but a shepherd. Again, that's setting the stage for what's about to take place as a truly miraculous event. So the author's letting us know, David wasn't a military guy. His brothers might have been. But David was just a shepherd. Not only that, he was young. The youngest in the family. So when David arrives at the front, he learns of Goliath's taunts. And he learns of the fear of Israel. Look at uh, verse 20 through 24. So David arose early in the morning and he left the flock with a keeper. That's another hired hand. And took the supplies and and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. What you have there basically is the two armies kind of coming out. They're hidden in the the mountains. They come out a little bit towards the valley and they start making noise and yelling and shouting and then they tuck their tail and go back. So that's what's going on here. They're out there making a lot of noise, trying to freak each other out. But then they go back and so David comes and he sees that. 
Israel and the armies, verse 21, drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper. This is when he got to the, the front. And ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And he was talking with them, or as he was talking to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. So David now becomes aware of what's going on at the front. David arrives there, he learns of these taunts, he also learns of the fear of the Israeli army. It doesn't say if this is David's first time making it to the front, but uh, he's learning some interesting things here. We see that it kind of piques his interest. So David asks a very simple question when he sees what's going on. He's very perceptive. He sees this army out there. He sees Israel cowering in fear. He sees this man, this giant Goliath come out there and start barking at the Israelites, taunting them. And David's a little bit curious why nobody's doing anything. This is a battle. We're supposed to be out there fighting. So he asks some questions. Verse 24, When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Then the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing with him, saying, What's to be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in according or in accordance with the word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the oldest brother, heard that he spoke to the men, that David spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness in your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. So what do we have taking place here? David sees this, realizes something should be done, and Israel's not doing anything. So he asks the question, So what's to be done for the man that goes out there? Well, we've already learned that they basically, the king had promised riches, wealth, power, absence from having to pay any taxes, and I'll give you my daughter if you just go out and take care of this Philistine. That was a pretty good deal. Now, you might lose your life, but you could not get it any better in Israel at that point. You know, you marry the king's daughter, you're now part of the family. You know? All is good. You don't have to pay taxes. How many here would, the kids probably don't understand this, but how many adults here would love to not have to pay taxes? They claim that if I didn't have to pay taxes right now, any taxes of any kind, I'd get about 51% of my income back. By the time you figure you pay gas tax and sales tax and property tax and all that stuff, you know? That's a pretty sweet deal. And so David's looking at these men. He realizes that's the deal, and his, his question is somewhat rhetorical. You guys not get what's going on here? Didn't you hear what's going to come to the man who goes out there and does this? So it's really more of a rhetorical question. It's in some respect, David saying, what is wrong with you people? Not only are your soldiers supposed to go out there and fight, but this is a pretty sweet deal. Look at how his brother responds. His brother is not happy. I would assume maybe because there's a little bit of shame there. Is it possible that his brother's a little embarrassed? That they're the soldiers, they're not doing anything, and they're being questioned by a lowly little shepherd boy? 
And so his brother accuses him of all kinds of things. He says, you're full of insolence. He says, you've got a wicked heart. In fact, he says, I know this about you, David. I can see into your heart. Basically accuses him from being a gawker. You just came down to see us all fight. That's really why you're here, David. Well, actually, no, I brought you food. (laughs) Dad sent me down here. You know? But he accuses him of all these things. I would imagine it's probably because of a certain amount of shame of not going out and doing what a soldier was supposed to do. But what's interesting about this, it becomes pretty clear here that David's interest in this right now is a little bit different. While the other men are sort of looking at, well, is it worth going out there because, yeah, king's daughter, it's a pretty sweet deal. I get good pay. It's pretty, no taxes. It's a good deal. David is actually more concerned over something else. Notice he says here that he was concerned with removing the reproach, the humiliation. In other words, this guy is humiliating Israel, the living army, or the army of the living God. There's a reproach that this guy's putting on. He says this guy is an un- uncircumcised Philistine, which means he's outside the family of God and he is taunting the family of God, which is mockery against God himself. David's concern over what's happening is that this guy is mocking Israel, he's mocking God. And that concerned David deeply. That's why he thought, somebody ought to go out there. How can you put up with this? So while his brother accuses him of just wanting to come to the front line to kind of see the bloody battle, or that he's insolent or wicked in his heart, that David's heart had nothing to do with that. David's heart was, how can you let this guy mock God and God's people? You've been out here for 40 days letting him do this. How can you do that? David saw it as an offense to God more than anything else. Remember when God said, I'll put a man there that's a man after my own heart? David was concerned about God and God's reputation. But his brothers didn't get that. It's funny because when, David's re, when David responds, a lot of the text, it's, it's the, the Hebrew that's there with David's words is very difficult. It's not really clear what David was saying. There's, there's enough evidence, though, that I think indicates that David's question wasn't, you know, what, can't I say anything? Which is how some of the English translations translate this. Wasn't it just a question? The word that's actually used there is a word for matter or issue. And it appears that what David is actually doing is saying, what, what have I done? Don't you see there's an issue here? Don't you see there's a matter here of importance? So David's question wasn't this um, defensive response to his brothers like, all I do is ask a question, what's your problem, dude? It was, don't you understand that there is an issue here? There is a matter that has to be dealt with here. God is being mocked by an unrighteous people. So that's a very valid question. David's actually the mature one here. Not his brothers. So, I would probably translate this just as the King James or the New King James does, which is this. What have I done now? Is there not a cause? In other words, is there not something to be done here? It's interesting that the King James and the New King James actually translate it that way. Because most of your modern translations translate it more as David sort of being defensive. I just asked a question. But that's not at all what he did. He was saying, don't you guys get it? This is a serious matter. This is an issue that has to be addressed. So, since nobody else decides to do something, David actually resolves to do what they won't. Verse 31. 
When the words which David spoke were heard, they were told, or they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him, meaning the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go up against the Philistine to fight with him? You are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. You notice the contrast there? The, I love Hebrew because of the word plays. Basically he says, You're just a youth. That dude's been a champion since his youth. It's a play on words. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from its mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his garments and put bronze, or put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took a stick in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Notice that David offers to fight Goliath, something nobody else will do, and the first thing that happens is Saul says, Are you kidding me? You're just this little kid. You can't go out and fight this guy. He will slaughter you. But David is not deterred. Not in the least. And again, we see that what David does, he's concerned over the fact that this guy's taunting Israel. He mentions that again as his concern. There was no pride here in David. Hey, I can take this dude out. This was somebody's got to do something, Saul. You don't understand. So here we find the contrast now between the king who should have been concerned, and he's just afraid. He's sitting in his tent. Notice that they had to send David to Saul. Saul's not an out where he should have been. And so he's in his tent with all of his stuff. David goes in there. This, this boggles my mind too. Saul basically agrees. Okay, well here, take my armor. I'll let you go do it. Good luck. What kind of king does that? He knew David was going to get slaughtered. He tells me, you're just, you're just a youth. At first it appears that David does a little bit of boasting. Because he says, well, I killed both a lion and a bear with my bare hands. I can take this guy out. So at first it looks like maybe a little bit of boasting, doesn't it? He says that this uncircumcised brute's going to face the same fate as those lions and bears. To be real frank, I, you know, a bear could have been maybe nine feet tall, but this would have been a pretty good fight. But uh, this isn't bragging by David. Because he tells us in the very next second, or a sentence, what he was thinking. Look at verse 36. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since, since, because, he has taunted the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So when David was boasting about the lion and the bear, it wasn't him. David said, it was the Lord who did that. It wasn't me. 
And for that reason, because this guy is taunting God, God will take care of the situation. Just like he did for the lion and the bear. So David wasn't bragging. He just had this incredible faith in what God could do. He was confident in God's ability to deliver him from Goliath. How many times have we said that in our study? That one of the major themes of this book is that God delivers his people. And so far what we've seen in David is a man who is only thinking about God. And the fact that this man is taunting God and his army. And so David isn't afraid to go out to battle because he's convinced that the Lord will do what he's already done which is to fight the battle for him. Verses 38 through 51. This is where it all comes to a head. We've already seen that he clothes David with Saul puts his armor on. David basically dresses dresses up, but he realizes this stuff's way too heavy. He can't wear it. Why? Because he's a youth. Remember, Saul was fairly tall as well. So David's trying to put on his stuff, and he can't do it. It's too heavy. So David throws it all off, right? I can't walk with this stuff on. You can almost, it would almost make a comical scene if you saw this in a movie, wouldn't it? David putting on all the stuff and he's kind of bare, well, he throws it all off. And this is where it's kind of, I find almost a little bit of comedy in here. David, it says, decides to go out, verse 40. Anybody see something funny about that? David goes out with a stick. Katie has been bringing sticks home lately. These big, t- and I, I don't know what they're doing with them, but I'm like, what? why do you have a stick in the house? Because we play, you know. A stick. It might be his staff, but it's a stick. This dude's got a 10 to 12 foot spear. David takes a stick. Then he grabs a couple of stones, it says. The stones that are used here, they've actually found sling stones in Israel. Probably small, a small round stones about the size of a tennis ball. So these aren't little pebbles. These are probably about the size of a tennis ball. And he grabbed five of those. And he's got a sling. And he's got a shepherd's bag. Again, the author's intent. This is not military stuff. He doesn't take any military equipment with him at all. Maybe he could have grabbed Saul's spear. Maybe he could have grabbed Saul's sword or something, you know? He didn't. It's all shepherd stuff. It's a staff, some stones to which could take out animals if they were attacked, and a, and a shepherd's bag. We can't miss that in the text. The author is really trying to lay down this amazing picture of this is a young youth shepherd boy going up against a trained military expert that's huge. And he's going up against him with the tools of a shepherd. It's interesting if you think about the foreshadowing of that. When you think about Jesus as the great shepherd... And what tools did Jesus use? You know, his own life. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just staggering when you look about look at the, the picture here. And so, again, I find that almost comical. He goes up with a stick. you got to think, David, you are nuts. You don't go out against a guy with a stick and a sling. But David does. And it gets even better. No armor to protect him. Nothing but a stick, a sling, and five small stones. Look at what this dude does when he sees David. This in itself is almost a weapon. David goes out to the Philistine, and the Philistine says, in verse 42, or verse 41, we'll say, then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. He doesn't even come out by himself. There's two, do- two dudes out there, right? Okay? He comes out there, and you can almost imagine the look on this Philistine's eyes like, the heck? Who, who, who is this kid coming out with a, he's got a stick in his hand. 
What are you thinking? Look what he says. The Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Okay, it means he looked at him just with hatred. Like, what the heck? You know? For he was but a youth and Rudy with a handsome appearance. I don't know why the author put that in there, but this is a good-looking guy. He doesn't even have any battle scars on him. He hasn't been out in the out, you know, for 40 days in the sun getting everything beat down on him, you know. It's those guys hadn't had showers probably in weeks. David's out there looking good. Okay? I don't know why the author put that in, but again, there's this contrast that he's laying out for us. You think of uh, Goliath like those wrestlers from the 80s? Absolutely, yeah. Big nasty looking dude. Exactly. Pretty boy. Exactly. Okay. He's not a soldier. Golden locks. Actually, he had red hair according to the text, you know. But he's a really good-looking, handsome guy, you know. You know, rowdy, rowdy type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you've got like you know this little Brad Pitt-looking guy. Yeah. And you know, and guys, you know, I mean, I'm getting goofy in some respects, but the author is doing this deliberately for us. He's setting the table because this is a miraculous thing that takes place. And the, and the author's having fun telling the story, so I'm trying to have some fun too. But that's the picture that we see here. And so the author sticks this in. He was a rudy, handsome-looking guy. The Philistine then looked at David and said, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. But look at how David responds. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword, a sphere, and a javelin. But I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. David is fully aware that this dude is better, a better military man than he could ever be. He recognizes that. He goes and he gives that to the Philistine. Yeah, okay, I get it. You're this big military guy. I understand I'm just some poor kid with a stick. You got all the weapons. I understand that. I'll give you that much, Goliath. It's all yours. Go ahead and boast. But he says, But I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And again he says, What? Whom you have taunted. Your offense, Goliath, is against God. That's why I'm here. Because you've offended Him. Verse 40. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into, or I'm sorry, and He will give you into our hands. So David goes out with the same confidence that he mentioned with the lion and the bear. Goliath, something you don't understand. I'm not going to be the one that takes you down. It's going to be the army of God. Or, I'm sorry, it'll be God, the um, living God of Israel. He's going to be the one that does it. It's interesting because we're going to see, and I was studying this last night, there's something else a little bit down the line where David, every time he goes out to battle, he asks for the Lord's counsel. And you don't necessarily see that here, but it becomes this interesting contrast. But David has this incredible conviction that this is all going to end okay. Because he sees it for what it really is. This is not just the Philistines against Israel. This is an affront to God. 
and God's going to take care of it. And David simply sees himself as a messenger, just the one that's going to act on behalf of that. So, what does he do? Verse 48. It happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David. So now he's coming after David. I almost would imagine David to start running around in circles a little bit. You know, got a stick and a sling and he's in a... But he doesn't do that. This guy starts coming out at David and look at what it says. David ran quickly toward the battle to meet the Philistine. When this Philistine finally says, okay, I'll take you out. David doesn't run around. He doesn't take his stance. He literally starts off with a full sprint towards this guy. He goes on the attack. David wasn't going to play defense here. Can you imagine that? David might, I'm guessing maybe he's five feet tall, maybe five and a half, full-on sprint to this guy that's almost twice as tall with him, with a stick in his hand, a sling and a stone, and this guy's coming out with a shield bearer in front of him, and what does David do? It says, verse 49, and David puts his hand into his bag. He's doing this now at a full sprint. And he took from it a stone, and he slung it, and it struck the Philistine in his forehead, and the stone, the stone sank deep, or sank into his forehead, some versions say deep, sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Then David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and took over the Philistine and took his sword, the Philistine's sword, drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, and they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and the gates of Ekron, and slain the Philistines, or and the slain Philistines lay along the way, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. It's an amazing thing. David killed this guy with one stone to the head. Think about that. A full-on sprint. These guys are pretty good. I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of the Palestinians throwing stones and stuff into Israel. Just this last week we saw some of that. And they were using slings, some of them. But it is still incredibly difficult to use a sling when you're running full steam. Also, considering this guy had a big old helmet that protected most of his head, there was one spot where this stone could have nailed this guy. And it's exactly... Do you think there might have been some divine intervention there? There is absolutely no doubt. And David does it with one stone in a full sprint, with no fear, at least according to the text. Now, it's not real clear whether the stone actually killed him, because it says he was killed with a stone, but then it also says that David had to cut off his head and killed him. And all likelihood it probably happened is he was mortally wounded with the stone, and David went and finished him off with the spear and cut off his head. Again, the author kind of reminds us that David didn't have any military weapons with him. He didn't use his own sword. Again, the author is laying this out for us. This was a divine, supernatural act. All because of one man's faith that God would do it. So David is able to kill Goliath. But not only that, if you remember, David's promise to Goliath was, (laughs) we're going to give all your dead bodies. David wasn't just convinced that he would take out Goliath. David knew that in taking out Goliath, that God would also deliver Israel from the Philistines and they would defeat the Philistines. That was a pretty big expectation on David's part, but he was convinced that that would be the case. And so David, this young shepherd boy, with no military weapons, goes out and defeats this military champion. And everything about it indicates that it was all God, doing exactly what God does, which is to deliver his people 
from their enemies. So God delivers Israel over the Philistines. So what do we do with this? You know, it's interesting because it seems that everybody knows about this story, even if you're not a Christian. Everybody knows about the story. Most of them think it's just that, a story. It's become part of our language and references to David and Goliath have become commonplace, haven't they? How many of you watch basketball? You know, just not too long ago with the um, college basketball finals and all that. I don't know how many times I heard, you know, it was David up against Goliath. You know, David is the the team that, you know, the small team from the small college town going up against the big name college teams. They're, They're Goliath. And so whenever you hear these victories where the, you know, the lesser known team beats the you know, the big guys, it's always David beats Goliath, you know. Um, the word often, or this picture of David and Goliath is often used to encourage us to go after our dreams, you know. You can fight those battles against your giants. In fact, I, um, who's the, uh, Greg Lowry, he's part of Calvary Chapel. He's kind of, um, he's on the radio quite a bit, and I, I hear his commercials, if you will, all the time, and it was funny because the day that I was working on this particular passage, he was advertising some stuff, and it came from a series that he had done on David and Goliath, and it was all about, you can go out there just like David did and conquer your giants, and it was all this motivational talk about being like David and going out and conquering all your giants, and that's oftentimes the way that we see this used. But as we've learned today, David's fight against Goliath wasn't about any of those things. David's battle against Goliath wasn't some attempt to show that he could conquer his fear against Goliath or that he could defeat a much more powerful adversary simply because God was on his side. Rather, his motivation was twofold, if you think about it. The first was that David says in the text that he wanted to remind Israel that God was their deliverer. He says, so that all will know. He had these armies that had forgotten that. Remember, they had been out there for 40 days. Literally, there's one dude, and they're afraid to go out. And so David's motivation was he wanted to remind Israel that it's the Lord who fights their battles. It's all about the Lord. But he also wanted to remind the Philistines that there was a God in Israel. He makes that clear in the text as well. He says that the God of Israel would protect his people. And so really, David had this twofold purpose in doing what he did. He wanted to remind Israel that God fights their battles, but he wanted to remind the world, if you will, around him that there's a God in Israel. So rather than us using the story of David as this guide on how to overcome giants in our life, which is oftentimes the way it's presented, I think we can do a couple of things. One is we should reflect on how God reminds us through our challenges like this, that he is indeed the one who fights our battles. You know, I had a, I asked for a prayer request last week relating to my boss coming down. I'll tell you, it was a brutal, brutal meeting. I won't go into the details, but I spent three hours getting beat up. Got my salary cut. Um, almost every example, every example that he presented was an issue that he had created. And um, it was brutal. And I had to figure out how to respond to that. And um, talking to the kids about it and stuff like that. Um, you know what? Um, I haven't had a couple of people ask me, so what are you going to do now? Because I put in long hours. I mean, Amy will tell you. Man, months now I've been working 7 to 8 o'clock at night, you know. Um, I'll just, you know, I'm going to do that strict 8.30 to 5 thing now. Forget it, man. I don't have to do this and put up with this stuff. You know what? No, that's not the right response. You know? Um, God's the one that takes care of our battles for us. You know? David let God take care of this for him. Um, We've got to let God fight our battles. 
you know, and there's a proper response. And so I've been working through what my response should be to all of that, you know, and it's not to retaliate or it's to, you know what, God fights our battles. God takes care of the things that um, only God can take care of. But the other part of this is I think we should reflect on how God will use them to reveal himself to us and the world. He used this event with... The reason God used a little shepherd boy with no weapons and no experience to conquer his enemies was to prove to Israel, I fight your battles! If God would have sent Saul out there with his big army and defeated this guy, then they could say, well, we did it. But God wanted to make it clear because Israel had forgotten that. So I think we should look at it the same way. You know, God uses things like this to remind us that there's a God. That he's the one that fights the battles for us. That it's all about him. He reveals himself to us, how he's going to work. And so now I've got an opportunity to figure out how God's going to work all this stuff out. Right? Um, So again, rather than use the story of David and Goliath as all about puffing up our chest with pride and going out there and, I can conquer my enemies, I can conquer, you know. um, It's much more about God revealing himself to us. Showing us that he does indeed fight our battles for us. But that it is all ultimately about him. And that's exactly what we find in the story here with David and Goliath. And what's neat about it is, again, you'll see David grow and mature through the story as we start spending more time looking at David and seeing how David behaves. And um, you'll see this incredible humility because after an event like this, you'd think David would get a little puffed up with pride, right? He could go out there and say, hey, I conquered Goliath. Remember me? I'm the dude. He never does that in the rest of the stories. In fact, he goes to God and says, should I go to battle? Should I do this? Are you going to deliver? That's what you see David do for the rest. There's no puffed up with pride here. Um, So, I'll go ahead and I'll just wrap it up with that. I I love this story. It's a fun one to go through. But, um, like I said, there's a good lesson in it for us. That um, God is indeed the one who delivers us and fights our battles for us. doesn't mean we have no responsibility. Remember, David went out with a full sprint with a full confidence, however, that God would be the one that would take and fight the battle for him, not himself.